Hello and welcome to Spy Hard's podcast, where your hosts go undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember this information, it's strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur. And Cam, we have a very, very, very special guest joining us this week. You could say uh, she's the Doctor of Bond. Mm, You could, and we're very excited to welcome her into our nuclear family. (laughs) (laughs) He's been planning that one all day. (laughs) Joining us today is Dr. Lisa Funnel. Hello. Lisa, thank you for joining us. Now, do you, do you want us to call you Doctor all the way through or Doc? How, how do you want to be addressed? Because you've earned the, the rank. Yeah, you can call me Lisa thereafter. Just as long as the first time there's the Doctor and then afterwards. Hey, you've earned it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you want to call me Doctor, Dr. Lisa, some people call me, but I'm cool with Doctor, Dr. Lisa, or just Lisa is fine. I'm going to go with the whole Whatever. name every time, I think, just to, <laughs> <laughs> just to really sell it. It's got a nice ring to it, doesn't it? <laughs> it's, a, it's a brand. I'm just trying to send it, you know, Dr. Lisa Funnel. Everyone remember. But um, you're here, and obviously we mentioned it briefly just before. You are the, the Doctor of Bond. But how did that come to be? Tell us about yourself and, and what you do. So I am a lifelong James Bond fan. I grew up watching the movies with my dad. I've talked a lot in the past about having Sunday night dinners with him. Uh, Well, it's with the family, but really my dad and I would pick the movie that we wanted to see. And we really connected, my dad and I growing up, just watching and rewatching and rewatching these films. When I was doing my degrees and my education, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I did my undergrad in arts and science. I took pretty much every type of course under the sun, but I knew that I was interested in gender and action films. And so I actually did an honors thesis on masculinity in Arnold Schwarzenegger films, right? So I was really interested in action, bodies, gender, representation. And when I was doing my master's degree in popular culture at Brock University, a program, by the way, that no longer exists. So I am rare (laughs) as a graduate coming out of that program. I had the opportunity to take a cultural theory class with Dr. Jim Leach. And this was in the early 2000s. And this was when James Bond scholarship, the first wave was coming out. And so I had the opportunity to learn from someone who was in this first wave. And he strongly encouraged me to do uh, my master's thesis on the Bond girl phenomenon. And he basically said, like, no one's really talking about the women in a very thorough and cohesive way. You might want to consider doing a project on it. And so I did. I did this large quantitative content analysis of right at that point, there were 20 James Bond films. This was before the Craig era came out. Um, And I ended up moving on, doing a Ph.D., uh, focusing in on women in action films. I've written a book on warrior women. But all of my interest in women in film really came from watching Michelle Yeoh in Tomorrow Never Dies, becoming very interested in Asian action women. And that's really propelled my, my career forward. And all along, I keep studying James Bond, and I keep publishing on aspects of gender, feminism, representation, uh, race, geopolitics, geography. And I just keep, I feel as though I keep pushing and expanding the boundaries of the field. And my goal is to encourage more people from a diversity of backgrounds, not just in terms of their identities, but in terms of what they study and bring those lenses onto the James Bond franchise so that we can really um, 
really uncover in many ways uh, the messages that are being relayed through this franchise. This is the longest running film franchise in history. And we're all so excited about No Time to Die because this film has cultural importance to us, right? It has cultural viability. And I feel as though if something is popular, we should be studying it. Thus, hence, and therefore, popular culture, uh, it matters. And so that's kind of been my, my career path. Somehow I managed to be a professor where I can write books on James Bond and teach about James Bond right now for a living. And I'm very grateful uh, uh, to be able to do that. And I do have more Bond books on the way. So, so yeah, it's, it, there's a lot of James Bond in my world. <laughs> well, I'm really curious because I'm thinking, you know, at the, at the time you start writing about James Bond and studying him uh, and, the, and the world of James Bond, um, I would imagine if you had said, I want to write about, say, the female leads of James Cameron films, people would not raise an eyebrow. Did you meet a certain amount of people kind of going like, really? James Bond mm-hmm. is a good candidate to talk about? Oh, Yeah. Um, I find that the the vast majority of people are like really interested in what I do. Like, you know, I go to a party, you study James Bond. Like I usually try not to tell people what I do so I can hear from them first, because when I say what I do, then they're like, okay, talk to me. Who's your favorite Bond? What do you think about this? But I have received a lot of eyebrows from people uh, being like, is this really what you want to study? And especially being in a women's and gender studies program, right? It's not considered to be the most progressive franchise. And so I do get asked, like, why are you studying this? How are you studying this? Why are you occupying your time with this? And then, of course, when I tell people I'm also a fan and a feminist and a scholar, it's almost as if these things are incompatible to them. And yet you can have your own personal ideas and you can like popular culture and you can negotiate your own readings and meetings of these films. And that's what most of us do all the time, right? There's, there's only a, believe it or not, there's a finite amount of media out there. And so you always are constantly negotiating how you're relating to these texts. And so, yeah, there's some people who are like, what are you doing? Why are you doing it? But I usually say it's important to have a diversity of voices. So why shouldn't we have women talking about James Bond and offering alternative perspectives? Right. And now, you know, when you talk about a movie like Casino Royale, for example, in the franchise, that's kind of a rich text to talk about in your field. Mm -hmm. What is one that people would be surprised that there's actually a lot to that they might dismiss out of uh, out of hand, even, you know, hardcore Bond fans? So I wrote a paper with Klaus Dodds uh, on the elemental geographies of James Bond. Um, And we spent a lot of time talking about Quantum of Solace. There's a lot in there about the elemental about the use visually of water and fire within the imagery. There's a lot in there looking at the way that elemental defines gender, how in a sense, James Bond's associated um, with more of of, of water. And that comes from um, him coming out of the water in Casino Royale, whereas Mm -hmm. Kimmel Montez is associated with the fire and the trauma of her past. And that's kind of like a flip from the fact that water has has largely defined women throughout the franchise. Women emerge out of water. Bond makes love to women in, in under the water. And water is a feminine element in, in terms of the way that we sort of conceptualize elements and gender. And so that's a film where there's... A, 
there's a lot of, of movement and fluidity in terms of our, our uh, typical conceptualization of, of the elemental and its connection to gender. And there's a lot in there when it comes to environmental sustainability and utilizing sustainability in nefarious ways, which then always reminds me of Ghostbusters. And like the EPA is the villain of Ghostbusters. And every time I watch them, I'm like, whoa, what, what is the message being sent through this childhood film of, of, of mine about environmental protection and the Environmental Protection Agency in the United States, but that, that that's a bad source. Um, so I think Quantum of Solace, it's, it's, the editing is a bit much, I will say that, okay? It's a little rapid. It's a little too rapid for those of us who get a little bit queasy when we see rapid editing, much like the Jason Bourne films. But if you can get past that, I think that there's a lot of of interesting things going on. And they also have a woman, Camille Montez, who does not end up with Bond. They Mm -hmm. part ways at the end. It's not the typical, oh, James type of moment. And she walks away from him because his heart is still committed to another woman. And I think that's a really powerful, if not feminist ending for a James Bond film. So there's a lot in this film about the elemental and gender that at least I have been able to sink my teeth into. And it's not just a film that can be easily dismissed. And I think that's what a lot of fans did at the time. And you are right. I remember seeing that movie in theaters and being like, I don't really like this, but you can tell that Mark Forster is trying to do more than most would expect out of this you know, property. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, he definitely is more of like an art film. He gives it like an art film <laughs> sort of, sort of bent to it. And it's, I don't necessarily agree with all of the choices. So when I'm watching an action sequence and if I can't, figure out what is going on and how. I can't see the map, right? It's not being laid out in a, in a way that I understand the space. There's a lot of times, especially like the boat chase um, <laughs> early on in the film where I'm like, I'm like, I don't know what I'm watching. Like, I don't really know because it's too rapid. There's too many rapid cuts. And I don't know if they're flipping the camera, but it just doesn't feel right to me. It's not legible uh, to me. So I, I feel as though there's moments where too much was done and sometimes a little bit of a... Uh, just just lessen the finger on the editing button. Just like give us a chance to digest what we're seeing. But I also think that there's elements in there that I find incredibly interesting. Like I'm constantly like, like the, the scene at the opera house or the theater. I think all of that is amazing. Bond stumbling upon, you know, this meeting of the quantum. And I thought quantum would be the new specter. So I was excited. And then I saw that there were women who were part of this organization. And I love the theater in the background. And then I love the music as there's the, the chase sequence through it. And then there's like fire. And yeah, I was all into that. And so I think that there's these really beautiful uh, moments uh, that can be quite seen as quite powerful in this film, but it's not a perfect film by any stretch of the imagination. I just don't think it should be like, in my opinion, like the bottom of everyone's list where I'm like, oh, I think it's a better film than, you know, 24 or 23. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen people's lists. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so. what is your sort of background, you know, moving beyond Bond, which spy films have really grabbed you over the years? Oh, Beyond Bond. Oh, that's that. Um, hmm. It's interesting because it's it's difficult for me to separate some of the work that I do from the films that I've watched. And so I would say that one film that I've really connected with probably in the last 10 years has been Spy with mm-hmm. Melissa McCarthy mm-hmm. um, in the way that it is definitely a play and a spin on James Bond, but it really draws in to question um, some of 
I don't want to say the toxic masculinity, but the toxic masculinity that can exist in, in spy culture. And Jason Statham's character, I think, plays it to perfection. And I love seeing their their dynamics and his extremism. Like, you know, I, I was set on fire in a car that, you know, was shot to the moon and I survived by parachuting, utilizing my tie. Like absolutely absurd, ridiculous things. And yet when we think and reflect on the world of Bond, it's kind of that level of ridiculous only at a smaller scale. So I feel as though that film is great. And of course, I'm, I'm, I'm moving us more up to more current films. Oh gosh, what am I thinking of? Um, I can see her. I'm going to have to look at my DVDs. Oh. Atomic Blonde? Yes, thank you. I was just like, I could see her. It's Charlize Theron. And that is a film, I don't fully understand it. I went to see it with a colleague of mine, uh, Dr. Ralph Bellavo, and we ended up, it ended and I looked at him and he's like, we're really smart people. Did you fully get that? And I'm like, no, <laughs> but it is beautiful. It, I love the costuming. I want everything that she's wearing. I love seeing stiletto heels being used as a weapon. Otherwise you should not be wearing heels as an action woman, unless you're gonna use them as a weapon. Why are you limiting your mobility? And of course, how body-based her, her character was. Charlize Theron is somebody who doesn't simply quote unquote embody, but she literally embodies her characters and the stunts that she did and the long takes of her action sequences that are giving us the guarantee of the real. We call that corporeal authenticity. So it's a measure of authenticity based on stunt work and personal risk. And so someone like Jackie Chan is no notable for doing this, right? And you had the Jackie Chan edit reels at the end of the films. So you could see him try and fail to do these stunts. So you have a greater appreciation for what he did on screen. And in this film, it is the long take that is supposed to be the guarantee of the real, watching her move through these spaces, engage in these moves, watching her body be brutalized. And then of course, afterwards seeing the, the bruises on her body. You know, it's one thing to say, ooh, look, she's in a bath taking, you know, an ice bath. And, and, and we could think, you know, in, in, in terms of sexualization, her body's on display. But when she pulls herself out of that bath and you see the bruises and the gashes, it makes you sit back and gasp, right? And then you understand, as I mentioned, all of the beautiful stuff, like the clothing and the makeup, it is there to be a masquerade of femininity, to mask uh, the, in a sense, all the trauma that she's experienced underneath. And so for me, that's a movie that really brought things full circle, but it's also a testament to Charlize Theron and her commitment to that role. So there's, those are some of the, the, the more recent films that have a spy bent to them that I find that they're doing interesting and different types of work and giving us like alternative representations of women in spy films. Very nice. Well, I would be remiss if I didn't ask this question. Now, I, I know these answers are very flexible and they move. Okay. But right now, what is your favorite Bond film and your favorite Bond? <sighs> I know my answer, but I don't want to give it. Because <laughs> it's everybody's answer, mostly. Like, I... I watched Casino Royale. I hated it when I first saw it. I was like, what am I watching? This is, this is, I don't want to say this is trash, but like in my mind, I was like, what is this? Mm -hmm. I think it's a brilliant movie. I have learned to love it. I have written so much on it. Um, definitely the Daniel Craig era is an area of specialization for me these days. Um, 
And I think that it is a solid, beautiful film that is a standalone, that's a great standalone film. You turn it on and people who are Bond fans or not Bond fans can actually watch it and enjoy it. And it is a point of contact for most of my students into the world of Bond. They're like, I've seen Casino Royale and now we're, they're waiting right now for us to go through all the other films to get to Casino Royale, right? It's, it's such a good film, but I want to give a shout out to Octopussy. Mm which is one that I grew up with. And the title, as I tell my students all the time, the title's the title, but the film is a little bit different. And I loved growing up seeing a group of independent women who are entrepreneurs, who lived together, who supported each other, who did gymnastics, who could protect themselves, really just living their lives. And, you know, growing up in the 80s, I'm I'm aging myself here, but that's fine. Um, Growing up in the 80s, I had like Wonder Woman on television. I had Princess Leia and I had the Women of Octopussy. And I think you have to find and seek out your role models where you can. And I always found that to be inspirational. Now, is Octopussy a perfect movie? No. Is it problematic? Oh, I could critique, I could critique the crap out of it. But there's always a part of me that's connected with it. And that leads me to who's my favorite Bond. And I grew up watching Roger Moore with my dad. And it's this is totally nostalgia based because some of his films are a little bit troubling um, in terms of the way that he treats women. And as a woman, I'm like, yeah, I don't like that very much. But I also think that Roger Moore was probably one of the best ambassadors for James Bond. He loved playing the role and he was so good when it came to his interactions with fans. And I love lighthearted, especially in a serious action film. I love witty quips and I'm not even a big comedy person. Like I don't like watching comedy shows or stand up or anything, but there's something about like his eyebrow acting, his delivery of a line, a little, a little bit of the slapstick nature of his performance that I always enjoy. Like I can't help it. That's just, maybe it reminds me of my dad and my dad's sense of humor, right? I kind of like growing up in a household where we were laughing all the time and life is hard. And it's nice to be able to have these moments of laughter interjected uh, within. So yeah, so it, it really is Casino Royale, but then there's an honorable mention to Octopussy leading into um, Roger Moore. Very nice. There's nothing wrong with Casino Royale. I know it's, some people think it's like the easy answer or whatever, but it's probably the best one they've done. So I, That's why I didn't want to give it. I'm just like, it's such a perfect movie. But it's, it's and the soundtrack, oh. and Eva Green. <laughs> that, that Chris Cornell song, just, it just it's one of the top ones for me, I have to say. But that, I just love uh, Chris Cornell. But that, that's another thing altogether. But, um, well, I think, I think we've introduced Lisa. So I think we need to talk about this film, Cam. Yes, we do. What are we doing this week? Well, Scott, sticking to my um, you know new theme of having to sing the theme song, it's um, the world is not enough. Boy, is that do, tone do, do, deaf. Do, do, do. Yeah, that is so tone deaf. But I apologize to Shirley Manson and Garbage for that. But nonetheless, we are doing 1999's The World is Not Enough. That truly was garbage. So <laughs> I know, I know. I, I weep for the listeners. Uh, yeah, you have to edit this as well. So, yeah, it's true. <laughs> well, Cam, I think I should give the listeners what they want, and that is the letterbox.com synopsis. It's basically my bag of running shoes to the fans. <laughs> um, the world is not enough. As the countdown begins for the new millennium, there is still one number you can always count on. <laughs> wait, wait, wait for it. Here we go. Greed. Revenge, world dominance, and high-tech terrorism. 
It's all in a day's work for Bond, who's on a mission to protect a beautiful oil heiress from a notorious terrorist in a race against time that culminates in a dramatic submarine showdown Bond works to defuse the international power struggle that has the world's oil supply hanging in the balance. Dun dun dun! <laughs> <laughs> See, I want, I, that's it, I want some sound cues. Thank you, Lisa. Cam doesn't do anything for me. Yeah, I just <laughs> blank stare. I'm here, I'm here to build you up. <laughs> uh, that was a pretty good synopsis, I'd say. Yeah, not bad. Doesn't give too much away. There's a few twists in this film. But, um,. Before we get into how this film came to be coming on over from Tomorrow Never Dies, I assume you'd all seen this in the cinema? Nope. Right, really? okay. Well, how did you feel? I mean, when did you first see Well, There's Not Enough, Lisa? Uh, by the way, the only films I've s- seen in cinema have been Casino Royale, Skyfall, and... No, Casino Royale and Spectre. Those were the only two that I've actually seen in the movie theater. Uh, great Bond scholar that I am. <laughs> um, I ended up watching it. I don't know if I had seen it when I had started my master's thesis. Um, I, I, I couldn't tell you, but I have more of a perception of it as I did research um, on it and watching it and doing like a content analysis. And naturally, by the time I got to the Brosnan era films, I would accidentally just watch the films and forget to like record stuff because <laughs> there's a lot of action. And I find the films to to actually be pretty good films. I know Brosnan doesn't get a lot of love, but this is a film that I just watched straight through and then I had to rewatch it to do my analysis um, because I was just really taken aback by Electric King in the film. Yeah, yeah she, she's someone I'm looking forward to, to actually talking about with you. But uh, Cam, mm-hmm. what do you remember about this one? Yeah, I mean, I guess I was, what, 19 at the time. This was coming out, of course, after Tomorrow Never Dies, which I was a big fan of. And I, I remember that I enjoyed it. I, I don't know that I ever walked out of a Brosnan movie unhappy. But I do mm-hmm. remember thinking to myself, this wasn't as much fun as the last two. There was things I admired. I loved the electric twist to it and how much uh, more interesting that character was and maybe some of the um, villains of the past, male or female. She just had a lot more going on than a lot of the villains. But I remember being kind of a little thrown by the movie's mix of sort of a, var- a very like dour tone with a lot of weird comedy and action sequences. And it felt kind of like, a little strange. So it took me a while to kind of settle as to where I felt, but I did walk out, as I so often do with Bond movies, mostly smiling. See, I'm actually on a different side with that one. You'll remember from the last couple of movies, I didn't see them at the cinema. This, uh, I, I caught them on home video because I was, well, 97, I was 10. Hmm. So um, by the time World Is Not Enough came around, I actually, this is the first one I definitely saw in the theatres. And I remember loving... Tomorrow Never Dies, and I remember coming out of this film and just thinking it wasn't, it didn't have as much action as Tomorrow Never Dies, and there wasn't as much fun in it. So, what, 12 year old me just wasn't that big of a fan. Mm hmm. I can see that. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I remember driving out the car park. Well, I wasn't driving, obviously, but, um, and just like, <laughs> just, just, just feeling a bit confused by it all. It's, it was a weird beast for sure and that it definitely felt different than the Brostons that came before. But I remember tracking a lot of the progress of this one in Cinescape magazine, which was my go-to back then. And there was so much talk from Brosnan being like, I really want this to be character driven. It's very important to me. I want to make my stamp on this character. And so I think when I did see the movie, I was more looking for that. Um, if I had not 
gone into it without any of that sort of background, I think I would have been really a lot more thrown than I even was. Yeah, it definitely is is a funny beast coming off the last two films. But um, speaking of Cam, how did we get here? Um, well, it's, the journey sort of began in 1997 when Barbara Broccoli was on a flight uh, shortly after the release of Tomorrow Never Dies. And she watched a special um, in the in-flight entertainment, a Nightline episode that was talking about major oil companies and how they're going after untapped reserves in the Caspian Sea post the fall of the USSR. And um, she kind of came up with that basic idea of like, well, what if an oil company was causing issues and wanted to develop this further? So development exec Simon Matthew, who works with the Broccoli's, brought in Neil and per- uh, Neil Purvis and Robert Wade, who we are going to talk about pretty much endlessly in any Bond film from 99 onwards. Um, they had really only a couple credits, Let Him Have It, which was a small crime film from 1991, and Plunkett and McLean, which co-stars Robert Carlyle. And it was uh, set for release the same year as this movie ultimately was released. And so they were basically unknowns, but they were brought in and it was their idea to make Electra the villain. They were really fascinated by Bond's relationship with women and how they affected him. And I think the initial pitch, I believe, was Bond thinks he's found his Tracy, but instead it's Blofeld, which is actually a really good hook, I got to say. Yeah, on that level, that's actually really interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So they looked at a couple of directors. They looked at Joe Dante. They looked at Peter Jackson. Uh, Barbara Bro- uh, Broccoli was a big fan of Heavenly Creatures, which Peter Jackson directed. Mm-hmm. They set up a screening of The Frighteners, his uh, follow-up film, and she did not care for The Frighteners. And so that kind of fell out. Um, I would be curious how much they were really seriously looking at those two, because it seemed that when they came to actually landing a director, they wanted someone who could really nail the very complicated electoral role in the film. And Michael Apted made a lot of sense for that. He's a British director, documentarian. Mm-hmm. He'd also directed uh, Coal Miner's Daughter, Gorillas in the Mist, and Nell, three films that all landed their lead female um, actresses um, a uh, best supporting or best actress nomination. So he had a lot of grounding in sorry in telling female driven stories. Have any of you guys seen any of those films? I can't say I have. Okay. Mm-mm. What about you, Lisa? No, I don't think so. Okay. Um, I would really recommend Gorillas in the Mist and Nell, actually, and Coal Miners. You know what? They're pretty three solid films there. Um, But uh, so he came on board and a big part of the issue was figuring out the story. And the character of Dr. Molly Warmflash in this film was originally called Dr. Molly Great Rex. I don't really understand that pun either. Um, But she was initially a bigger part of the movie that kind of floated in and out. They decided to beef up the M role. And um, originally, Christmas Jones was a Polynesian insurance investigator, which is very different. Um, they, mm-hmm. deci- they decided against that because Brosnan was doing the Thomas Crown Affair, which also featured Rene Russo as an insurance investigator. So they ended up moving away. Then Christmas Jones became a bounty hunter and then ultimately a nuclear scientist. These are three very different professions, people. That's a strange arc from uh, creation to screen. Yeah. Yeah, okay. But I think it's reflected in our costuming. I mean, I'm I'm not a fan of the Christmas Jones character. And I think that if you're going to do a female, like if you're really going to focus in on like a female-driven film, because there's a lot of women who populate this film and have a lot of influential roles, I feel like they put all their energy into Electra King and then forgot about Christmas Jones and developing her. But when I looked at her image 
um, as a nuclear physicist or, or whatever she was, um, she reminded me of Lara Croft in oh, terms yeah. of exactly how she looked. And so when you said bounty hunter, I feel as though you can see sort of like the influence of that like adventure style culture in her representation in this film. Yeah. Mm-hmm. As soon as you said Lara Croft, yeah, that just, that clicked in my head. That's it almost feels like exactly how they designed her visually. No, I think this comes out the year before Tomb Raider, doesn't it? Is it maybe two years? Yes. Tomb Raider came out in 2001. Yeah, yeah. So they actually were beating them to the punch in terms of huh. a somewhat cinematic representation of Lara Croft. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But the video game was so popular. And, oh, and yeah. like the, the typical, like, even I'm thinking the color palette that she was wearing, because Lara Croft wears blue i think it's like blue on the top and then like the pants and then the boots that are darker in color like i'm trying to remember christmas jones but i saw it and i was like if she was to have her hair not tied up but in just in a long ponytail it would have been croft right there Mm -hmm. yeah and so basically what happened was um purvis and wade uh, had concocted sort of this very elaborate story very much driven by electra but they felt that other characters were kind of getting lost they brought in bruce Mm -hmm. firestein who had worked on Goldeneye and Tomorrow Never Dies. And his sole assignment was to work on James Bond and figure out exactly what his role was in this film and how they could improve it and make it obviously more of a Bond film. Um, uh, Michael Apted's wife, uh, or then wife, Dana Stevens, came in and did uncredited work on the female characters. So um, I'm guessing she worked a lot harder on Electric King than Christmas Jones. But nonetheless, there was actually a female writing credit or uncredited work, I should say, on this movie. Um, she would be the last female writer before uh, Femi Waller-Bridge would join with No Time to Die. So that's very interesting, I think. That's a long time. Yeah. Um, in terms of casting, mm. the only other thing really of note was actually the Christmas Jones role, which was apparently three actresses were up for that role. Um, I don't know who one of them was, but the other one was Tiffany uh, Thiessen from Saved by the Bell. And she was a huge Bond fan. She saw this as a transition film. She desperately wanted to do it. And she said this was the worst career rejection of her life, was not landing this role. So I thought that was actually really interesting. And that it was someone who was very passionate about the Bond franchise and just did not work out for them. Hmm. What was, yeah. what was Denise Richards doing around this time? Uh, well, this is, on the, this is just after Starship Troopers and Wild Things. So she's hmm. on an upswing for sure. Okay. And uh, lastly, uh, Jerry Hollowell of the Spice Girls auditioned for this film. Um, she says it was as a villain. I have my doubts it was Electric King. I'm thinking maybe the Cigar Girl? Maybe? That would make the most sense. But there's some stunts involved with that. Like, I don't think Jerry Hollowell. Was... Yeah. I don't know. I, I just have... Uh, mm. I feel like there was an audition. I don't know that there was serious uh, discussions going on here. I think this is sometimes, you know, if you're a big enough celeb, they'll talk to you for sure and want to meet with you about a potential role, but it just didn't work out. Well, um, 12-year-old me was very much into the Spice Girls. And to be fair, 33-year-old me is also very much into the Spice Girls. So uh, <laughs> I would have been uh, very much uh, for her being in this film. British pride, right? Hey, I've seen them live. I'm, I'm proud. There you go. <laughs> uh, so the box office, this movie had a budget of $135 million. Domestically, it did 126 foreign 235 for a worldwide total of 362 this was a definite hit landed at number eight that year at the box office the worldwide box office i should say between notting hill and american beauty the top three was star wars episode one the sixth sense and toy story two Um, a couple other notable things austin powers the spy who shagged me opened this year landed at number 10 
the Pierce Brosnan film Thomas Crown Affair landed at number 31. So that's very interesting because uh, this was a good year for Brosnan. Um, mm-hmm. I miss the days when Brosnan was like a real box office force. I really like the man. <laughs> I like his films. I like him as an actor and I like him as, as Bond. And I feel like for some reason that's controversial. Like, you, you know, Brosnan, I don't think he yeah. gets enough love these days for mm-hmm. um, his contributions. And maybe it's because he's like the last Bond to hold the role. So maybe, but I've always enjoyed him as Bond and I wanted him to continue after uh, Die Another Day. But I, I think it has more to do with the, once you recast and that person works out, people immediately turn on the previous one. Mm-hmm. It's like, kind of like the Spider-Man syndrome, you know, a lot of fans turned on Tobey Maguire when Andrew Garfield came on. And then they turned on both of those guys once they got Tom Holland. So, uh, you know, give it 20 years and suddenly they'll all be looked at in a very different light. And I think Brosnan will be too. Um, I, I'm not, this is not controversial, but I would take Pierce Brosnan over Daniel Craig personally. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, Me too. Yeah. There you go. Let's, let's be controversial together. Yeah. <laughs> hashtag, hashtag team Brosa. <laughs> Hot takes. Um, a couple other uh, kind of unfortunate things to do with this movie's release. Um, one month after it was released, Desmond Llewellyn was killed po- uh, following a very bad car accident from a book signing. Um, it is always kind of odd to me that his exit in this movie feels so final when yeah. I don't know that that was ever intended to be the case. It, it just has always seemed, though, like this character is saying farewell. But they, and especially the way that they set it up, because it's not just him sort of uh, descending down, you know, always having an exit, which is perfect for if it's going to be your final role. But he also talked about having his successor there and introducing the new person. And I don't know if maybe based on his age, um, I, I know nothing about his health history, if there were conversations being had about his ability to continue on um, in the next film, which might be two, three years later. And so there may have been a conversation or a consideration that this could be, this could be it. It seems very likely. He was a total company man. They loved him. I would suspect yeah. there probably were conversations. Um, the other thing I'll just note was this movie, uh, Denise Richards, who really got lambasted for this movie and the Razzies targeted very much her. She won the worst supporting actress that year. And both her and Brosnan were nominated for Worst Couple. And I look forward to talking about this character because I really think that Denise Richards got a very unfair shake in this larger picture here. Yeah, I, I, I would agree, but we'll get into it, I think. But have you got anything else for us, Cam, on uh, on how it came to be? Nope, that wraps it up. Yeah, with the, with the Desmond Llewellyn stuff, it, I, I think I read that he said he was going to do the next one not long <laughs> after the film came out, but before his uh, untimely passing. Uh, so I, I think it was just sort of a well-written scene that could have acted in either way, like a, his final scene or not. But if it was going to be his final scene, which it obviously was, what a way, what a way to go. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Mm. Um, okay. Well, we're here now, 2021. <laughs> uh, Lisa, you're our guest. You've revisited it for the podcast. What are your thoughts now, 22 years later? Hmm. And a ge- just a general, like a whole bunch of thoughts. I have a whole bunch of thoughts. Um, I <laughs> yeah, think just go that for it. go for it. Yeah, I think that it's a film that, as I said before, is populated by a lot of women. Whether it's Cigar Girl, the Doctor with an unfortunate name. Can we stop naming doctors <laughs> with unfortunate names? Um, Doctor Christmas Jones, because just for the last line, ugh, I, I I groan every time I 
I get to the end of the film. I'm like, I can't, I can't even do it. Terrible name, terrible joke, do better. Um, but I do feel <laughs> as though like Bond is very much surrounded by a lot of women in this film. And this is very typical of like the 1990s and the Bond franchise showing that like the world around Bond has changed. Women in that world have changed. And so Bond then has to act and react. But that doesn't necessarily mean that all the women in that world can be um, seen as being sort of capable and competent. And we see someone like M letting her maternal instincts and emotions get in the way. And that results in her actual capture. Um, so I think that that's interesting. I think that this is the first film where we've had an attack take place, not just in the UK, but on MI6. And there are a lot of interesting comparisons that can be made between this film and Skyfall. Um, and this film that again is very like woman centric versus Skyfall, which is, I think a, a very heavily masculine oriented, uh, film. Um, so, so yeah, I think that having an attack on the homeland is definitely an interesting aspect of, of this particular film. And for my dad, I will have to highlight the water sequence at the beginning of this film with the boat. And it's probably one of my favorite chase sequences. I, I'm not really into like car chase sequences because I've seen so many of them, but what I've always liked about the Bond films is like ski chases, give me snow, cello chases, give me more snow. And then of course, water chases. And typically with water chases, you're using like the air and the land and you're not just staying in the water. And I love the scene when uh, the shot, when he goes underwater and, and Brosnan does his typical like tie twist uh, whatever he does and, and he shows like his ties in place. And that reminds me of the, the tank scene from GoldenEye. And to me, that's like classic Brosnan's Bond. And I feel like this is a film that to me is inconsistent in terms like there's a lot of interesting moments throughout that I, I tap into. And then there's moments where I'm like, this is kind of boring. <laughs> you know, let's, let's, let's speed things up. Let's have more action. Um, or I have no idea what's going on on screen. Um, but I, I, I found that I enjoyed the chase sequence at the beginning more so than I did the, the fight sequence on the sub. So I, when, when you were reading the review and you're like, and like an exciting tank sequence fight. And I thought in my mind, I'm like, was it really though? Um, <laughs> I found it interesting that the death of Electra King was not the final stamp. Because I feel as though that would have been a greater climax had they adjusted or tweaked that and showing like, you know, Bond killing a woman. And by the way, in, in the 90s, he really, Bond doesn't really kill women up to that point. Uh, but in the 90s, he is using his license to kill to, to everyone. And he typically kills women uh, who are threatening him in the manner in which they're threatened. So Xenia Onatop, um, who asphyxiates people with her legs, is killed in an asphyxiation pose with like a tree that looks like a pair of legs that's sort of like sort of going out in, in sort of a Y shape. And so in this case, Electra King is somebody who is challenging Bond by masquerading as a Bond girl. You know, this idea that she's, she's supposed to be someone that he's gonna love and protect and challenges him and he shoots her in the heart. And so I, I feel as though maybe that component could have been better amplified. So I'm not sure if I, I, I did what you wanted me to do, but I'm just sort of peppering things out as I, as I was thinking of them. No, no, that's, I mean, we'll pick up on bits and that throughout as we <laughs> talk about it. That's fine. But it, it, overall, would you say you liked the film more or less from the first time you saw it? Um, I would say more. I, I would okay. say my appreciation of having a woman as a villain in a Bond film, she's the only one. And 
I like the way if you watch it, they set it up to play on your emotions, right? Like Cigar Girl says, I'm afraid of him. So we're thinking, okay, Renard's the villain. And then we see, you know, the briefing with his face in the bullet and we're like, okay, he's the villain. And yet if you really listen to her dialogue, she constantly says, she's not interested in her anything to do with her dad. So your dad's oil, she's like, no, it's my mom's oil. It's my family's oil. And always relates things back to, in a sense, her maternal side. Again, women matter in, in, in this film and sort of her mom's family and this idea that it's stolen from her by her dad. And so she's constantly giving us like these little hints that she's the one, but we're still sitting there humming and hawing and thinking. And then of course, to show that she's the one who turned Bernard and not vice versa, I think was like a huge, like, yes moment for me. And the more that I've watched it, the more excited I have been about women villains. And the more that I miss them because I can't really think beyond, I don't know what we, what we think of Miranda Frost. Mm. But really beyond that, there really isn't um, an empowered woman as a villain um, who comes across the the Daniel Craig era. Um, and we can talk about, um, you know, the woman who ends up poisoning James Bond and Christina Royale, but her character is very disempowered. She has no standalone identity. I like the fact that Electric King is a fully formed standalone character who is villainous and is, is interesting and just I'm just gonna keep rambling for a second but like I think that her conceptualization and her relationship with Renard very much reminds me of a view to a kill with Zorin and Mayday only flip the gender yeah that's how that's how I read it where you have sort of the um I mean it's a problematic trope in James Bond about having sort of physically enhanced hench people Right. And so he definitely falls in line there. And then, of course, having somebody who uh, is, is maybe I don't want to say psychopath uh, because that's definitely Zorin. I think probably sociopath is more Electra King. But what I like about Electra and Renard is that they have what the other person lacks. So Renard can't feel on the outside, but he's very sensitive on the inside. And Electra King can feel on the outside, but has very limited feelings on the inside. And they're kind of, like they're together, but it becomes very tragic when you see them together because you know they're bound to fail. They have what the other person lacks, but they can't fill the other person up. And so I, I've always found their dynamic to be really, really fascinating and actually quite tragic to the point that I feel bad, not for her, I feel bad for Renard and his inability to be able to love her and 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 connect with her, which is the same way I felt about Mayday being betrayed by, by Zorin, where I was like, okay, well... If you piss me off, I'm going to go and like blow up your plant too. So, so yeah, <laughs> I, I've always sort of connected those two. So there, I, there's there's a lot in this film that I find interesting. I've never made that connection before with those two, but th- that yeah, the Zorin thing is is definitely there. Um, Cam, how how's your thoughts changed? Yeah, it's I've always found this movie fascinating in that a lot of people rank this as like one of the worst Bond films. Um, I think Entertainment Weekly I think might have called it the worst Bond film of all time. And when I watch it, you know, as I did last night, I, I sit there and I hone in on the Electra character and what they're doing there on a psychological level of character writing. And I go, this can't be the worst. Like, this is a Bond movie that's trying to do things. That is inherently more interesting than some of the ones that were lazy. You know, like, there's a lot, there's a number of them that are just lazy. And I, to me, this movie has such an interesting element with 
the character of um, Electric King and the relationship with Renard. And I look forward to diving into that further. But that's what I walk out of this movie with. Um, I still find, though, the energy level of it is so weird. Because you have all of these very moody scenes with Bond and Electra, Electra and Renard. That stuff I'm getting sucked into dramatically. Like, it's very much working for me. But then you get, like, the Parahawk sequence. And I love action in James Bond movies. It can be a ton of fun. But it feels like these two things are clashing. And that the energy of the dramatic scenes is just sucking the tension and momentum out of the action. So I don't really care or even find it that interesting because it just doesn't have any momentum. And it's not like it's not shot well. Some of the action scenes look great, but they just don't have that sort of excitement you look for in a Bond film. But, you know, I remember things like, you know, in theaters, finding the the moment where Elektra gets shot by Bond to be like jaw dropping. I remember in theaters being blown away when that happened. And I still feel that way every time I watch it, because I love that Elektra is easily the most powerful character in this movie. I mean, Bond and Renard, very much get broken down by her and the movie doesn't try to hedge it as like well but bond was actually just playing along with her little game like bond is legit hurt in this movie and i really enjoy that aspect of it so there's a lot of things i don't care for the christmas jones stuff feels like a relic of the old movies almost like we're not quite ready to move into Daniel Craig style James Bond storytelling we're trying to figure out what that could be so we're working in character drama but we're still falling back on Roger Moore moments because, you know, we don't want to put off the fans too much. So it is a mixed bag, but it's one I find consistently interesting. And I can totally understand why Christopher Nolan was looking to this movie when he was developing the um, Bane-Talia relationship in The Dark Knight Rises, because there's a lot there. I didn't know that either. Yeah. Can I ask a question, Cam? Yeah. Can I ask you a question? Um, do you think then, as you're talking about like the difference in terms of the emotional tenor or having the energy being sucked from the dramatic scenes, pulling it out of the action sequence, which is which tend to be, like you say, a little bit more lighthearted, do you think that what then makes the action sequences of the Daniel Craig era? I mean, it's a moody era, okay? <laughs> like just throwing it out there. But when I think about his action sequences, his action sequences are not just physically demanding, but they're very emotional as well. Bond is is is, is very emotional in, in his actions. There's always close-ups of Daniel Craig's face and the determination, or he's reacting to something, he's angry. There's always emotion that is driving the physical action in the Daniel Craig era, which then matches the emotional tenor that is taking place in the other scenes. There's more of a balance. Do you think that that is the difference between the t- styles of filmmaking, I know, and all that stuff, but... Do you feel as though like the the action sequences in the Brosnan films lack, say, the emotional intensity to be able to pair up well with the narrative scenes? Well, I think what matters, you kind of hit the nail on the head as far as I'm concerned there with the Daniel Craig action moments are very character based. We're getting a lot of shots of his reacting. You know, we get moments where like uh, in Casino Royale where like Bond runs through a wall. And we get Daniel Craig emerging with that look of determination on his face. It's all character writing going on through the action. Whereas, like, when you watch the action scenes in this movie, um, you know, whether it's the Parahawk chase or the uh, saw blades at the caviar mill, um, you know, these moments, so much of them, like, look, Daniel Craig is doing a lot more of his stunts visibly on screen than Brosnan is. I know Brosnan did do stunt work on his films, but it's not showcased as much. You don't get the um, emotion coming out of the character in these moments. 
a lot of the time they feel more like let's just assemble action sequences the way we did in say the Roger Moore days where we're dealing with a lot of stuntmen try to disguise that and make it more of this omniscient sort of here is action people versus the more realistic Daniel Craig approach of let's put ourselves in the bond position and run through this action sequence. And I think the saw mill is a really good example when I was watching that. And there's the one shot of like Pierce Brosnan running with the saw behind him running towards the camera. And then they kept cutting away from that. And I'm like, no, show me more of that. Like I found that to be probably the most exciting component of that entire action sequence. And again, because it showed Brosnan having some sort of emotion very quickly because it was quickly cut away. But those were, I, I think I wanted more of those emotions. And maybe that's the reason why I was very disconnected, even with the whole sawmill scene. Like, I'm not really sure what the point of it was other than to cut a car in half. Apart from showing off that Bond went to the Prometheus school of running away from things. But <laughs> I do agree with you, Cam. There are these like weird action scenes, like the caviar dock and the, and the powerhawks. And they just feel like they're just thrown in there because you need them for a Bond film. And I think from what I thought of as a kid to now, I think I probably appreciate this film a bit more now. But I feel like it's really struggling to find its tone. If you look at it in sequentially from Goldeneye, I feel like Goldeneye probably nailed it for what Bond should be at that moment in time. And then I think Tomorrow Never Dies went far too quippy. It's like a joke every mm -hmm. second in that film. And then this film, I think they almost went too far serious. And they're compensating with, you know, especially that moment at the beginning where he is in that uh, the banking office and in, in Spain and he has that just staring at the screen for one second, he's oh serious bond face. And you think, okay, this is what we got. And then, you know, he shoots Electra later on. It's a very serious film. And then it's followed up by die another day. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. It just feels like they were trying to find a new tone and they couldn't quite do it. So yeah, I mean, there's a lot of quips in this movie as well. And I'm not against bond quips, but I don't know where along the road they decided that there should be about 25 quips per movie where, you know, you go back to the classic Connery ones, you'll get like, I don't know, three maybe. And they're just really good. Like, why not figure out your three and just work from there? Mm -hmm. Quantity versus quality. I agree with that. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about the electric character, because I think, honestly, that is the most interesting thing to talk about in this uh, in this film. Um, so, Lisa, I'm just curious when you saw this movie, like, did this character feel revelatory at the time? Or is it something that sort of with study over the years, Electra's become more and more fascinating? Uh, I would say with study over the years. Um, she, and I mean, that's all I've done. <laughs> <laughs> but with study, I've come to appreciate her um, more and more. I love the, again, the rise of women villains coming back in the 1990s. I love the women villains of the 1960s. I like it when women, not... Women are transgressive when they challenge social norms and when they challenge, in a sense, the place that women are typically slash traditionally supposed to supposed to be. And for so many Bond films before in the 70s and the 80s, with the exception of May Day, you know, women really didn't play strong villainous roles. Um, think about Rosie Carver. Think mm. about Andrea Anders. Uh, you know, you look at these women, Naomi, uh, you're just sort of sitting there. These women might be beautiful, but they don't really have strong substantive roles. And I think that's something that I've grown to appreciate with Electric King. And even when you think about Xenia Onatop, Xenia Onatop is very strong, bold, but she's also in many ways a caricature, right? 
um, she's over the top. Whereas someone like Electra King is given the human treatment. And we see who she is. We hear about her background. We see if you really watch it carefully, we can see her with her little side eyes and moments here and there. We're not expecting it the first time around. If you watch it a second time, you can sort of see the way that her character is stepping into the Bond girl role. And of course, then stepping out and revealing or giving us these little hints of of who she is. But I feel it is probably one of the best uh, depictions of a woman as a character, as a human being, as being multifaceted and having her own goals that have nothing to do with James Bond, right? She's goal-driven for herself, for her family. And that's kind of rare. And in the James Bond franchise where everything seems to revolve around James Bond and in many ways as it should, all the characters are oriented around him. Whereas in this film, she's really the son. All of the characters are orienting around her. M is making decisions about in, in service of Electric King. And so is Renard. And so is Bond. And everything starts leaning in and just sort of, um, when I think of a solar system, right? There are all these planets, but she is the sun in the middle of, of that. And that's not common in a James Bond film. We usually don't have this much emphasis on villainy. Um, and it reminds me, not just a From Russia with Love with the focus in on villainy, but more like From Russia with Love, with love the novel, right? Where like, it's all about villainy and then a little bit about James Bond. And I feel as though it that's one of the reasons why I like that novel is because there's such a concentrated like focus in on the bad guys. And I, I it's something I appreciate about this because there's just not enough women villains uh, as of as of recent in the world of Bond. And maybe that's my discovery through a lot of study and stuff coming to it being like, okay, well then there is something of value here that needs to be elevated and discussed. Well, I, I suppose well, I, had a, I had a question about the sort of conception of the role of Electra because it didn't really come up in, in sort of the briefing at the start cam. Mm-hmm. Because I know Christmas Jones was you know, three different per- people, three different characters when she was being envisioned as, you know, during the process. But was Electra always Electra? It seems to be like, I think that was the concept right from the get go was we'll make Electra the villain and as soon as Purvis and Wade came on, like that was their idea, yeah. It's so it's it's great that they nailed uh, a strong female lead in the film. I just don't know how why going forward it's not something they kept doing because they've proved they can. Yes, she's great. She's great. Yeah. Yes. I, what I love about Electra is that um, when you look at Xenia. I remember so much of the press around that character, and I mean, it's very surface level, is that she uses sex as a weapon. What I love about Elektra is she uses intimacy as a weapon. Yes. Um, That's something, Bond jumps in and out of bed every, you know, 10 minutes in one of these movies. You know, we see it with like Dr. Warm Flash at the start of the movie. Like, that's nothing to him. But you get that moment where he's like touching the computer screen that's playing the video from her hostage crisis. Um, He goes in. And it's not about the sex scenes between Bond and Elektra. It's about the moments after where they're like laying there together. Like Bond is connecting to this woman and that is her greatest weapon. And we see that with Renard as well. She'll like poke and prod at him. But you know, when he punches that like really, really scary looking box that will slash her hand to ribbons, um, she's sitting there, you know, uh, basically warmly, um, you know, pulling out the glass and holding ice on it and kind of propping him back up like she uses that sort of intimacy as her greatest weapon and it's something that i'm i'm surprised i wasn't more shocked in 99 seeing it just because it felt so outside the norm i can understand why 12 year old me was probably a bit confused going Hmm. into it but i i think now she's just such a 
I what? Well, okay, there's two things. I had trouble understanding her actual uh, plan. <laughs> well, isn't that common with Bond villain plans? <laughs> that that is that is very true. Uh, but I, I I don't blame that on the performance or the character particularly. I think that's just where the script falls down. But I'm more drawn to what she goes through, and that that scene at the end where she is shot by Bond mm-hmm. is the only scene in this film that makes you kind of stop and go, oh. Except for maybe the intro, which I want to talk about in a minute as well. Um, right. But is there any other scenes for, for you guys that topped that? I mean, just that moment at the end where she's running up the stairs and Bond's chasing, and she's laughing. Like, to her, like, the, Bond is not being treated seriously in her eyes, and I love that about this character, and that there's no, like, sitting down at the table like, well, Mr. Bond, let me explain my plan to you. It's like, she really does view him as an inferior character. And you can tell that she doesn't really think that much of him when she yells, dive into the uh, into the walkie-talkie. Like, she doesn't really... I don't think she thinks he's going to shoot her in the head. I think she thinks she's still got him wrapped around her finger. And I just love sort of the arrogance of that character and just how how cold and, you know, sociopathic is really, I think, the best term for this character she is. And I like the way that it turns these typical gender norms on their head there's this idea and it's a stereotype out there that if a man and a woman have sex the woman is gonna become a clinger and fall in love that women fall in love having sex and then the man's like oh gosh get away um and we see instances of this so if you look at the doctor at the beginning right that's not the first time bond has slept with her right and so he's utilizing sex and 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 in some ways intimacy with her in order to get what he wants that's bond's track that's bond's trend bond uses sex as a tipping point in order to align people with his heroic plight and so he can get the job done and sex is a component that's the message about sex and spy culture and i think it's very interesting that for a, a, a hero or a spy who does that all the time, he falls into the same trap that he has been leaving with so many women throughout the years. And she definitely turns it on his on, on its head. But also the film presents the fact that she lacks the ability to connect with people. And so maybe that's the reason why she can draw men in without being connected and attached uh, back, back to them. But I find it interesting that it sort of flipped on on its head and uh, sort of the typical trope in the Bond world um, and that she's able to do it to him and then act as as a meek Bond girl. And I, I also was um, shocked again when I saw it about her laughing going up the stairs. And I think that that is something that also draws us in, right, as an audience. We see her sort of laughing. And when we see people laughing, it's not like the Joker, ha, 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 where we're like, oh, but it, it, it looked like kind of like a childlike, you know, girlish laugh, right? And we're thinking to ourselves possibly that she isn't that much of a danger, right? And so when he does shoot her, I think it leads into our shock because we're also being in many ways um, – brought into like being mesmerized by her as well through through these moments of these 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 laughs and these moments of intimacy that we're also kind of falling for her and so when she dies when we see bond being like no i need to pull the trigger to end this because we're all gonna go down because she's she's you know brought us all in she did the same thing to m right she utilized intimacy although not sexual intimacy to get m on her side she's doing this with everyone including the audience bond is the one who has the ability to sort of end it and he has to end it abruptly in that moment well i'm thinking about like how this character was conceived and you think of james bond as a superhero 
basically. You know, James Bond is Superman. Now, I'm not saying Pierce Brosnan looks like Henry Cavill. Uh, Pierce Brosnan's more of a Dean Cain. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, bless his heart. But um, what is Superman's weakness? It's kryptonite, right? So what is Bond's kryptonite? And it, it's got to be his heart. You know, you think about Tracy, you think about Vesper. Mm-hmm. So they built someone who is the evil version of those two people. And that, I think, is just why it's so successful. Mm-hmm. And you have that moment, too, at the funeral or just outside the funeral where she says, um, you know, have you ever lost a loved one? And uh, I think she has a very good read on this guy immediately. And I think that's another strength of that character is that uh, Bond can't quite wrap his mind around her, whereas I think she understands him better than he would be uh, very comfortable admitting. Yeah, she has his number from the get-go. She has everybody's number from the get-go. I think she, maybe her superpower is her ability to read and manipulate people and know what would be, in a sense, what, in a sense, since we're talking about intimacy, what form of intimacy, what way to connect with people could get her what she needs in order to move to the next phase of her plan. Well, I think we should just pivot onto some other bits that are good about the film before maybe we talk about some nitpicks. But that whole opening is probably the best one until Spectre. Until Spectre. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, it's definitely up there. I mean, I love the Millennium Dome. It's now called yeah. the O2. But, um, I mean, you can actually walk over it now, Cam. So if you ever come to London, we'll actually walk over the O2. And I'll push you off the side. <laughs> <laughs> we can restage the opening of this movie. <laughs> yeah, you, you can fail to grab onto the cables and keep plummeting. Yeah. How much is it to rent a hot air balloon? <laughs> <laughs> we'll find out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I just think that and it's, I remember there being so much press in the UK about them shooting that. It was in all the papers because they like ended up holding up the river for a, a good couple of weeks whilst they shot that scene. Yeah, I can believe that. So much reporting about it. So I felt like I'd seen most of the scene before I saw it, but it is so captivating and exceedingly long. <laughs> yeah, it's the longest pre-titles uh, sequence. And there's, I don't think it's ever been confirmed, but there's a lot of belief that the sequence was actually supposed to just be him jumping out the window of the Swiss bank and walking away. And that would be the pre-credits. And then the boat chase would take place after the opening credits. Um, whatever, if whether if that was the initial idea, then they were right, I think, to um, connect it to the boat sequence and just do all that before the credits, because that is one hell of a way to launch the movie. Yeah, I think it would have been too boring if it was just him jumping out and walking away with the with the briefcase. And I did also when I was watching it, I was like, wow, this is pretty long. <laughs> just because we typically expect it to be what, like four or five minutes, there's going to be, you know, oftentimes some sort of sex and there's some sort of action. And then we move into the the credits. But this was more of a narrative scene that had a direct connection to the narrative that was like, it, it was very pronounced um, moving forward. Yeah. It's also, I think, really interesting in that we're working M into the pre-credit sequence this way. And she is playing a larger role than ever before and plays a very um, significant role within the plot. And it is notable. This was also the year that Judy Dench won Best Supporting Actress for Shakespeare in Love. So I think they were very smart to give her more material because it was definitely, um, you know, this is a high for Dame Judy Dench fans for sure. Um, this sort of era. And I mean, to see her get boosted up in this movie was awesome. But I love that they work in this whole backstory of her with Sir Robert, um, who she read Oxford with back in 
the day um, in the opening credits. I think it's great to work in that sort of character story just right up front. Well, I put myself out there in saying this is probably my favorite until Spectre comes along. But what are your guys' favorite opening scene? Is it this one or is it a different one? Oh, boy. Um, it's really hard to uh, not call out the parachute jump in The Spy Who Loved Me. That one's pretty sensational. Um, I would go with, again, with nostalgia. I kind of like the pre-credit sequence in um, Octopussy with mm. like the, the bass and then the horse thing that goes up. Uh, but also a shout out to Casino Royale and it's monochromatic double kill showing Bond uh, get his license to kill how he, how he attained it. I think it's very innovative and different and, and is a disjuncture in the franchise. I think that that's, I think that that is in and of itself, like its own unique thing that I would put on a shelf over there and then compare all the others. One thing I really love about this introductory sequence too is that we have Bond getting injured. And I remember Brosnan talking a lot about that in the lead up to this movie about how Bond would have a shoulder injury throughout this movie. I don't know that they did as much as they could with it, but you can definitely see they're trying to expose vulnerabilities to the character right from the outset that they're carrying through the movie. So I do appreciate it for that as well. And definitely a good precursor to the body-based mode of heroism that happens in the Daniel Craig era. Like Daniel Craig is more of like a hard bodied Hollywood hero um, where, you know, it's all about the body, how the body looks, acts, endures pain and all that stuff. But I really feel as though like with this one with the shoulder injury and even uh, die another day with the torture sequence at the beginning, we're starting to see these images of Bond not being in a sense omnicompetent, like nothing hits him. There's no blood, you know, Bond fights in like a glass, uh, museum uh, in in the spy who Moonraker in Moonraker, and like doesn't get a scratch. Like how is that even humanly possible? Like I I pick up a piece of paper and I get like a like a paper cut, right? Um, <laughs> and so like just seeing it in the past, there's never really been that much blood or or any sort of like uh, trauma to see him in this film have the shoulder injury and then not die another day. Be uh, somebody who has to come back. Um, and I think that that really sets up uh, the trajectory that the Daniel Craig era goes in with Bond's body being beaten and bruised and always coming back. So I think that there's value in these last two Brosnan era films for what they set up. And, and in a sense, the ground that they're walking or the ground that they're paving or the baby steps they're taking towards the next phase, they really are precursors or transitionary films. I think um, Pierce Brosnan was the guy who kind of had to die on the hill so that we could get to the Daniel Craig era because so much of um, Pierce Brosnan's complaints during that whole period was that we need to make Bond more of a character. We need to be delving into his weaknesses, his vulnerabilities, his insecurities, all that sort of thing. And I'm sure there was a fair amount of blowback. You know, I don't think Eon was particularly interested in that fully in this era, but you can see that he pushed the, the kind of the block along and so that when we finally did get the reinvention with Daniel Craig, we actually got that fully realized. But I can appreciate um, Brosnan for having sort of the vision of wanting to do that in the first place. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, before we get on to things that we'd maybe like to improve, is there any other highlights for you two? I'll just say there's some great visuals in this movie. Um, we've said the action sequences aren't necessarily spectacular a lot of the time, at least in terms of sucking you into what's going on on screen, but there are some great visuals. I have always remembered that moment where Bond confronts um, Renard in like the bomb facility 
and the glass is there and he shoots the bullet right between the, the eyes there. And I, that image has always stuck with me. I think Michael Apted, he may not be a great action director, but I think he knows how to create some visuals that are very memorable. And I mean, uh, the Renard scene at the end with him dying impaled with the missile pointing in the air. Um, that seems, I think, intentionally very symbolic for that character. Can we also talk about the sex chair? The torture device. Okay. (laughs) You mean the antique that they dug up as a relic of the old days of sex chair torture? (laughs) Yes. Because I I know that that is very, um, I don't say popular among Bond fans, but post a picture of that and people are like loving it on Instagram. They're like, yes, this one. Uh, But I kind of like the mode of torture, this idea that Bond doesn't uh, but there's a lack of consent in there. Uh, but like this idea, like he he is being challenged not just intimately but also physically. Um, yeah, it's a, it's an interesting device that in the way that it's used. Although now I'm questioning if I should like it based on the lack of consent that's <laughs> being involved. I'm like maybe I don't like it as much as I thought I did. But it's a very interesting torture device and again going with the intimacy right this idea that you can't help but fall in love with me you can't help but be attracted to me now your body's out of your control me 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 it fits in with that but yeah the lack of consent well it also finalizes the shift in sort of the uh, dominant submission relationship they have because Mm -hmm. throughout of it uh throughout the movie um she is often playing sort of this person who's obviously undergone a lot of torment and bond is assuming I'm a protector figure to this woman a lot of the time. And at the end, with that chair, we get the reversal of, no, no, I'm the one who's in control. I'm the dominant person here. And you're basically a plaything in this moment. And it's a pretty fantastic sequence that, you know, the Bond films usually want to amp up sort of the big uh, stakes of what Bond is facing in these sort of climactic moments of suspense. And I like that this one is very threadbare. You know, it is a chair, two actors, and just the chemistry they have on screen. And the challenge to his sexuality. And I think it also brings in, when you talk about something else I liked, is his name Zorowski? Zirconi? Zorowski? Zakowski. Zakowski. I keep thinking of the, the crystals. Uh, I kind of <laughs> like his character in that moment when he ends up shooting the, the device on the leg and just sort of the comment like, well, he must have hated you and he missed. But I kind of like the fact that he had a heroic moment. And I know that probably in drafts of the script, he died. But I'd like to think in my in my imagination that he somehow survived this, this ordeal um, that, you know, that he that he didn't fully sacrifice his life, but he was able to save Bond because I kind of liked him as being um, an ally. I like the, the chemistry he and Brosnan had together. He's one of the better allies. I, I can believe the uh, the head cannon that he survived. It's fine. It was one <laughs> shot. <laughs> you know, you think of some of the other Bond films like, um, you know, say like Honor Majesties or From Russia With Love, where you have these sort of shady um, allies of Bond in Karam Bay or Draco. Yeah. And what I like about Robbie Coltrane's character of Zukoski is we actually get to come back to that character. Mm-hmm. The other guys get one and done. You know, they're either killed or they're just written out. Um, what I like about Zukovsky is the first time we see him in Goldeneye, he's definitely shady, um, and that's carried forward here. But I like that we see the sort of evolution of their relationship where, you know, Bond was the one that gave this guy a limp. He shot him in the leg back in the day. And we kind of get this grudging respect in that final moment where he does release Bond, because while they may not be working on the same sides, they have a certain commonality in terms of recognizing maybe the greater evil in a situation. 
And he also shot, quote unquote, returned the shot in the leg. Only this time he got the mm-hmm. the thing at the bottom rather than his actual leg. Yeah. I like the way that that comes full circle, actually. That's really good. Yeah, like they did a lot more with Zukovsky in his two appearances than they ever tried with Jack Wade in <laughs> <Yes>. his two. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, well, I think we should pivot over to Dr. Jones, Dr. Jones calling Dr. Jones. Hmm. Uh, how, where do we start with this? Hmm. Well, <laughs> Lisa, Lisa, help us out. Yeah. Uh, um, hmm. I know that Denise Richards didn't have the easiest time during on set with this. Um, I think that there was a lot of attention put into the character of Electra King, and I'm, I'm sure that that made its way into um, her her experience on set. I don't feel as though the character was given as much attention as Electra King, and I do not understand. <laughs> trying not to get mad about this, I do not understand why you cannot give us two well-formed women in the same film. Because let me tell you, I can watch a whole bunch of Bond films and show you two well-formed men in Bond films, right? And yet for some reason, it's like, we can give you one, but we can't fully give you um, another. And I would love to have seen balance in in terms of of, of her strength as a character. Um, And I feel as though there were, between her name of, and, and the joke behind it at the end, um, and some of her costuming, um, I felt that it was designed to sexualize her um, in ways that were, in my opinion, in ways that were not necessary. I get that it's a Bond film and all that stuff. But, you know, when you costume a woman in a white T-shirt and put her in a submarine that's being submerged in water, you know what's going to happen. Like, you know what you're going and what you're what you're leaning into. And I feel as though those are just sort of like easy ways of of doing it whereas if you talk to bond fans if you talk to people they gravitate towards women who are more fully formed people like diana rigg as tracy bond because she's a great character and they love vesper lind because she's a great character and that's something that i want to push for women on screen i don't you don't always have to shoot a gun heroism is not just one thing but i want to see women who are just better fully formed um, on screen and in a sense treated with a bit more dignity and respect, but that's just me. And isn't there the one scene when they're at the the chopper mill thing where she's dressed as a prostitute when she's with Bond? Uh, yeah. Yeah, and it's, yeah, it's like, why would, I, I remember watching it this morning and I was, I, I, I was trying to pay attention. I was eating breakfast and I was like, why is she dressed like this? Like, why did we need this particular moment? And this is how she's quote unquote undercover. Like, I'm just like, this is not necessary. So, so yeah, I have my mixed feelings and I, I don't want to sit here and, and personally just trash Denise Richards for her acting in the role. And I don't necessarily know if, if some of the other actors would have done um, a better job in that role. So I don't know if it's an acting thing or a, a conceptualization aspect, but yeah, not, 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 not necessarily the biggest fan of this, this character. Razzie nomination aside, mm-hmm. I, unfortunately, I feel like I can see the writing room for this character. It's almost as if they've gone, guys, guys, we've got this really well-written female character. Now I think we're probably stretching it a bit at this point. So I think we just need someone who's just going to say words with, you know, boobs. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that, that's really unfortunate. 
well, and it feels sometimes like they were hedging their bets where it's like Electra is a, feels like a character that's pushing the franchise forward. And they were like, well, let's, let's throw in a classic Bond girl with, you know, the goofy name and all that. But I, I don't think if you'd thrown this character into an old Bond film, people would like her anymore. Like, I think the character is just kind of a dead end. And I don't blame Denise Richards for this. I think Denise Richards, no. um, over the course of the films I've seen of her, I haven't seen a lot of range, but I think if you give her the right type of role, she can pull it off. Um, what does this character do? She spouts exposition and she has jealous moments over Electra. That is dire territory for any actor to have to play. And the one kind thing I can say about this character is she never has moments where she's incompetent. Like whenever she has a technical job to do in the movie, she's able to do it. So I guess the action hero stuff, um, you know, Denise Richards can pull that off and the character doesn't get those kind of goofy I'm thinking like Mary Goodnight like moments in yeah. Man with the Golden Gun, for example. But, you know, a lot of people make fun of Denise Richards' delivery of a lot of the techno babble in this movie. But what do you do when you're a character who literally just walks into scenes and just starts spouting jargon? Like, it, it's not interesting. There wasn't a lot of space for her to stretch in the character, like you say. Like, it's literally there to provide, say, data points or information and, like, and, and not connect with any other of the other characters, right? She has no connection with anybody except for Bond. So I can see what you're what you're saying there. There's really no room to sort of like settle into the figure. One of the lines that drives me nuts too is uh, something along the lines of, you know, what are you doing here? And she says, avoiding those types of questions in regards to, you know, Bond being mysterious. And it's like, no, really, what is she doing here? I would like to know, like, what is the background of this character? Tell me something for God's sakes. Yeah. There's a, I actually had a line written down as well. Hang on. Um, it's pretty awful. Oh, yeah. This is this is how she's introduced to the film. Don't worry. She's not interested in men. Trust me. Yeah. Great. That That's that's a, that's a war, that's Academy Award winning writing right there. Yeah. Ugh. And I would say that if there was a, a certain amount of pandering on Eon's part with this character of what they wanted an audience to react to, I don't think it worked. And I think it... Uh, I mean, I guess we'll have to see going forward, Scott, if we feel it changed. But um, I remember in the theater when the big line at the end of the movie hit, that it was not an audience laughing. It was an audience that made a visible, uh, very audible reaction of just groaning in that was not funny. That was terrible. Like no one was laughing. And maybe I think my parents, oh, go I think my parents were embarrassed for me. As I was a 12-year-old sitting there watching that. <laughs> and maybe it shows that, like, even, I don't even know the doctor's name at the beginning. We don't even have to say her name. But through this type of, like, naming, I always had an issue with these double entendres because they work to essentialize women. They boil them down to sex characteristics, right? To their sexuality. And we laugh. We're supposed to laugh at them, right? Be on the side of Bond. Bond hears a name. We laugh at them. And nobody likes to be laughed at. There's a difference between laughing at someone and laughing with someone, right? Being in on the joke or being the actual joke. And I feel as though these names have historically trivialized women and in and, and, so many cases diminish their capacities, right? Dr. Holly Goodhead is a freaking astrophysicist and an astronaut. Bond cannot do his job without her. So she's introduced with 
you know, with a name that makes everybody sort of like groan. Like my students don't want to say Dr. Goodhead. My students don't want to talk about pussy galore, right? They're just, they, they're like, why are these names here? And I feel as though we're coming to the point where maybe we've hit like as far as we can go, right? W with these types of names, with diminishing the doctor at the beginning. And then of course this, this, this pun at the end, um, after talking and talking about the name, like don't make jokes, don't make jokes. And then there's a joke. And I feel as though this is the imbalance when it comes to women in the film. Again, you have like a strong woman villain, and then you have some other characters who are given these names that just diminish from their capacity. And even like, I like the character Cigar Girl, but she's called Cigar Girl. I don't even know yeah. what the character's name is. She doesn't have a fully formed identity. And it's one of those things like, I'm all about having women on screen. Love it. But give them something to do and don't just sexualize them. When you, Even when you talked about the introduction of Christmas Jones, she's not just introduced, she's introduced taking off clothes, right? And yeah. then she's introduced with, well, I've tried to get with her. And she's just there, even without hearing her name. She's essentialized and sexualized, like her sole purpose, even though she's there to, I don't know, deactivate nuclear bombs. She's there for her capacity. She's being sexualized by all of the, the men around her. And that then leads us to look at her in that way. We're looking through the lens of these two men and oh, I've tried this, you know, point of view shot. And then we're watching her taking off, you know, a layer of clothing, right? Like, I, I don't know. Part of me just gets very frustrated because it happens so often in Bond films and so often in other films that I'm like, why can't a scientist just be valued as a scientist? That's what I liked about Nat Natalia Simonova in GoldenEye. Right. Mm -hmm. I liked her because she was capable and competent. She did her own thing. And and we we liked her as a character and as as a figure. Whereas and she wasn't introduced in this type of manner. So I feel as though like during this era, they're kind of hitting it in, in some ways, but they're not balancing out their cast. And I think it's like you said, the writer's room, it just seems to be very easy. This is very easy. And and I I don't know. I just Part of me always says, you know, when it comes to these these elements, whether it's racism in films and ableism in films and sexism, like just be more creative as a writer, right? Like you don't have to do the same sort of stereotypical things. You can do something different and guess what happens? You can you can make something that people will really sink their teeth into and really connect with the film. We even, me and Cam remarked in when we covered um, Where Eagles Dare, for instance, I, 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 you know, in that film, 1946, I think it was, Cam? Uh, no, it was the 60s. It was 1968, I think, or something. Yeah. I'll take it. Terrific female lead in that film, okay? And yet we're still stumbling in 1999. And you think Austin Powers has a film out this year. And their, their female characters are named the same way to take the mickey out of James Bond doing this in the 60s. Why are we doing it in the 90s? Not only that, but I felt like when they introduced Xenia on a top in GoldenEye, that was a villain character taking ownership of that name and showing it from a position of power. And in my mind, thinking, they can't do that again. This character has changed the way that we would view a character with a name like that. And it's weird to see them backslide back to the old days where it felt like Xenia on a top was very intentional in the way they used her. Mm-hmm. Well... I don't think we can fix this one. I think that's a stumble in the writing. I have no problem with, with Denise. I think she did as much as she could with what she had. Yeah. Um, this movie also has an issue with backwards engineering, 
where the only reason the name Christmas Jones exists is for that final line, as we've stated earlier. It's ridiculous. But, like, the movie does that a few times, where, like, the whole... Um, you know, introducing the avalanche uh, jacket that's backwards engineered so we can have the avalanche scene. Like there's no reason for him to have that. This movie does that a few times and it's, um, it's just a sign of kind of, uh, I think probably rushed writing in some ways, just trying to make sense of things they want to work into the movie. The joke though is, yeah, that's, that's the biggest sin of this movie. And I think it's very telling. It's actually one of the things people remember the most about the movie and not for the right reasons. Nope um well let's just be through the main characters that we haven't touched on uh, and just quickly speak about them before we start to wrap up the film but Pierce Brosnan's back for his third time as James Bond uh I, I think it's a more serious turn I think he obviously requested it and I think he does quite well with what he's given yeah I think it's definitely him continuing to evolve what he started with Goldeneye and I think oh, we may find this is kind of in some ways the end of the road for how far he can seriously take this I like Pierce Brosnan as Bond, so <clears throat> so I I liked seeing him in this film. We saw him in the last film having the emotional connection to Paris Carver, right? And seeing how close somebody can get to him. And so I like the fact that in the Brosnan era, there is more of a focus in on his vulnerabilities um, and his humanity, um, which is which is an element that I think has been missing from previous. Um, manifestations of of Bond. So I thought he did a pretty good job. And I, I bought into him falling for Electra King and then, of course, having to be the man to pull the trigger at the end. Yeah, I do have a question how you guys felt about John Cleese in this film coming in as the new Q or R. I'm a, I'm a big Monty Python fan. So any chance I get to see John Cleese is fine by me. Uh, he's played like the fool, which is, I suppose, fine. But... Um... I, I have no uh, issue with it. I was just, when I watched it, I was like, why him? You know, like if you're <laughs> going to have a, if you're going to have like a successor, wouldn't you pick somebody a little younger to be your successor? Right. Cause like I was just thinking, I'm thinking of like, what is the age difference between these men? Like you're going to take over Q's workshop. Q's been doing this for 40 years. So, you know, is there nobody else? And, 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 you know, I feel like there are moments where we can have greater range and diversity in terms of our casting. Like there's no man of color that could have done this job. There's no woman who could have done this job. Like you could have had flexibility here in this one moment as the successor coming in. And so I was just like, okay, sure. And I didn't feel as though John Cleese was given much to work with. Like you said, he was the butt of all of the jokes. And I mean, John Cleese is someone who can deliver some pretty good lines and make me laugh. And yet I don't think he was given any material other than be recognizable, stand there. And, you know, we're going to open that parachute thing on you. Yeah, he's definitely not served that well. I do like the line about uh, the legendary 007 wit, or at least half of it. I, I think that line's pretty good. <laughs> um, I actually really enjoy him being introduced as young fellow. That actually does make me laugh. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's again like he only gets two movies. So it doesn't seem like they're interested in developing Q or R, whatever you want to call them, the way they would with Q in the Daniel Craig era. So. I assume we would have seen him again if they did another Brosnan film. Oh, yeah. I don't know if he showed up in any of the video games that came out afterwards. You can bet he did. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> um, I won't be catching those. Apart from that, uh, any other characters? 
I don't think so. I mean, Goldie's kind of a weird casting choice as Zukovsky's henchman, but I like that he's very visually recognizable. Oh, we've actually just completely forgotten, and that's one of the things I noted down. Renard. <laughs> oh, right, yeah. I mean, yeah. Robert Carlyle has, in a way, a not particularly fun assignment. I don't think like playing Renard is probably that fun, but he's also essential for making Electra the villain she is. So um, I remember when he was cast, they very much fronted Renard as the main villain of the movie. They hid that twist like crazy with Electra, and he has a great gimmick. Um, I like that they talk about how, um, you know, behind the scenes, they were talking about how this would be a more grounded, realistic villain. I'm like, I don't know about that. <laughs> maybe, <laughs> maybe emotionally, but physically, no. Uh, but I do like him in this movie, even if I know a lot of people dismiss him as kind of boring, but I do think mm-hmm. he's doing what he can. And Carlisle's a great actor. So I like, as you say, the emotion that he brought. I found him to be a very emotional figure and a very tragic figure. And I connected with that throughout. Um, and I, I like, it's weird because like, it's going to sound weird. I like films that make me feel things for people that I don't want to feel them for, right? It's the reason why I like like South Korean um, like horror films and thrillers because they oftentimes like elevate these truly horrific figures uh, and they put them in these tra- tragic roles. Like if you've ever seen I Saw the Devil, like I'm aligning with the man who is like, murdering women, right? Because he's being tortured, right? And and you're, these films are making me feel things that I don't want to feel or lean towards. And I kind of like the fact that this film, um, in a sense, made me connect emotionally with with this, this particular hench person, with this particular villainous figure and trying to understand what it must feel like to not be able to feel. Um, and I think oftentimes, you know, Bond films elevate these bodily differences for these hench people, like they're, that they are um, biologically enhanced, right? And it's not a fair fight against Bond. Whereas in this case, it really emphasized the emotional uh, challenges that, that he had. And of course, having the capacity to love and having love in many ways unrequited or at the very least not being able to have it returned, to me, just put him in this really tragic place and even at the end as he's fighting bonds like he's hurt when he finds out that electra is dead like you can see it in his face and to me that's a testament to the acting right it it, it also hit me seeing him wince at it and and i found him to be actually be pretty emotionally compelling in this film i like that he's not a big physical specimen of a character like um you know robert carlyle's not you know, massively tall, like some of the big henchmen of the past Bond films. And they definitely did some prosthetic and makeup work to make him look a little, uh, you know, less attractive than Robert Carlyle would normally look. And I like that they give him that sort of, he's not your kind of um, Superman character coming in and being undercut. He's actually someone who's more interesting because of the fact he looks unconventional for a Bond henchman. I think they, they do the, the old switcheroo in this film, of course, with Electra and Renard. And I, I think Renard then kind of becomes like the the muscle. He's the odd job. Mm-hmm. It's just weird that he survives till the end. Well, until that scene. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, well. Um, yeah, I, 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 I spoke to you about this when I watched this the other day, Cam. I, I actually forgot Robert Carlyle was in this film. Mm. Yeah, that's I, fair. Yeah, I don't know what that says about how I took the film, but hey-ho. Um, but that's all the characters I kind of want to touch on. Now, I've got a couple of like final thoughts, but I'll throw it out to everyone else first. Lisa, anything you want to touch on about this film before we wrap up? 
Um, I think that it's interesting when, when we talk about Judy Dench and her character. On her watch, this is when you see mistakes being made by M, right? Not with the men who've played M beforehand, but on her watch, you seem to have traitors. On her watch, you seem to have her making mistakes. Um, and there's a lot of emphasis of this across her tenure. And I think it goes back to something that you mentioned before about it being Judy Dench. It's friggin' Judy Dench. So of course you're gonna give her a greater role um, in the Bond films, right? You're gonna utilize her ability to act and emote and convey emotion. And I think Judy Dench, whatever she is given, tends to do it quite brilliantly. Um, but I also, part of me thinks it's a shame that she has to make so many mistakes across her tenure, that there's so many traitors that, you know, in the Daniel Craig era, there's a whole bunch of stuff that happens where she's, you know, under investigation and all of this stuff. Um, but I did, you know, it's one of those things where I think back to the way that she was introduced in GoldenEye and you're a sexist, misogynistic dinosaur and, you know, people calling her the evil queen of numbers and fighting back about sarcasm. There's a lot of stuff in the first two movies where I find that there's like a great strength to her and her fighting, in a sense, the patriarchal institution that probably is the intelligence agency, right? And I'm sure that this is a particular position where you've had men as admirals constantly occupying and, and performing this role. And after her, it continues back on to, in a sense, white men occupying this particular place in space. And so to see her um, be in this position in the first two films, I was like, yes, Judy Dench. Whereas in this film, when I started to see her talking about maternal instincts, making mistakes, the suggestion with the Oxford comment, maybe she had a relationship with, you know, um, Electra King's father. And so maybe that like clouded her judgment. And there's a lot of things along those lines. Yes, there are moments of redemption with asking for the clock back and being able to do something MacGyver style. But even just having her standing there after James Bond shot her and looking surprised, but knowing that that's his job and she's his boss, like that was the threat. The threat needed to be eliminated. 007 has the license to kill. She's there for emotional impact, but her role is supposed to be the leader in many ways of the unit. And so it's, again, Judy Dench, great, but I sort of question the depiction of M and the, and the mistakes and the emotions and how that is presented as part of her character but that's rarely brought into question when it comes to men, if and when they occupy those roles. Yeah, that's a great point. And I mean, I can kind of understand why it didn't happen in the older ones, because M was barely, you know, he didn't really do much in those movies where this, they really did boost the Judy Dench character. Um, but you are right. It's very problematic as to when these sort of story threads get introduced and they have not really happened with, um, you know, Ray Fiennes. So that is a definitely great point. Uh, what about you, Cam? Any any final thoughts? Um, I just wanted to touch on actually the score. I think David Arnold is uh, such a great composer for these films, and I wish we were still getting David Arnold scores for Bond films. Honestly, yes. Um, the one thing I noticed though that felt very 1999 was there was like record scratching going on in the score at the uh, boat chase at the start of this movie, and I was cracking up. It was very new metal, <laughs> as in like someone on a mixing deck doing the old Lincoln Park thing. Yeah, I couldn't tell if it was actual, like, record scratching or if it was, like, uh, you know, digital record scratching that they'd created. But it had a definite sound to it that I was going, oh, boy, it's like the days of uh, Limp Biscuit here. 
<laughs> as long as uh, Rolling doesn't make it onto a, a James Bond soundtrack, I'm happy. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. Um, I was actually going to mention the score, so I'm glad you, you mentioned that. Uh, the, the only two notes I had, uh, are, are either of you fans of the TV comedy show The IT Crowd? I've seen it. I haven't seen times. it. Okay, I'll I'll just I'll just say what I saw then. When uh when Christmas Jones is trying to defuse the bomb in the oil pipeline, she's got a little tablet, a little handheld device, and it's run by Windows CE. It makes a good point to to do that so they get the plug in for Windows. And I just I get I just think about the scene in the IT crowd where there's a bomb defusing robot, and uh, the the guy from the TV show goes, uh, "What's the operating system?" And the guy goes. Uh, Windows ninety five, and then, and then the, the, our character turns around and goes, "We're all going to die." So <laughs> I, that just took me back to that. So that's a very weird reference for about five people out there. So enjoy that. <laughs> and the only other thing I had down was the the one million hand game in the casino was probably the worst move I've ever seen since when me and Cam tried to play blackjack in <laughs> Vegas. Yeah, good call, good call. We didn't lose that big, but we still lost. Yeah, we we lost. Um, well, I, I might save that for our Diamonds of Forever episode down the line. Sure. <laughs> uh, but that's it, really. That's all I had. So I guess we'll get on to the knock list. Um, Cam, do you want to just quickly run over what the knock list is? Yeah, so the knock list is the need to see official classics of the Spy Hearts podcast, where every episode... After talking about the movie, we decide whether it belongs in the pantheon of all-time great spy films. The the titles you would throw out if someone said, what are the best spy films of all time? You could say, check the knock list, they're on there. So that's the essential sum up of the knock list. Basically, the, the films we've got so far are things like North by Northwest, <sighs> The 39 Steps. Like it's 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 big, big, big film. So it's going to be... And to, to be fair, Bond-wise, we have Dr. Nose made it on, uh, From Russia with Love, and Goldeneye made it on. Yeah. Tomorrow Never Dies did not make it. <laughs> I'm just kind of disappointed with that. Okay. I, I love I love I love Michelle Yeoh, but the problem with yeah. the film is that she's only in half of it. So that's exactly. Fine. Yeah. Yeah. That that's exactly what I said on the episode. I know we're not going to have this on our episode now, but like that whole ending with her, she should not have been at all romantically interested in James Bond. She was better than him. Uh huh. She should not have been caught. She should not have been tied up. She should not have been submerged underwater. Their first kiss should not have been mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. And then she shouldn't have been laying under him because it reminds me of Aki, um, who says, like, to Bond, I will very much enjoy serving under you. And I think about that. Oh. And I'm just like, oh, oh, I got issues with that, with the ending of the movie. Yes. So, yes, I agree with your choice not to put it on the list. Yeah. Cam, Cam, I think Cam suggested it in the review for Tomorrow Never Dies, but I think Bond should have been the one that was strapped up underwater. Uh-huh. And Waylon should have saved him. I'm, you know. Yeah, Waylon should have fought Stamper at the end. And there is a way to write the films where women don't have to be tossed into the water and like put to the side. She could have been doing something else. She could have been fighting the guy. She could have been fighting like three other bad guys who want to shoot a gun at Bond so that Bond can fight the dude. Like there's ways to write women into films that doesn't mean that it's like, help me, save me, kiss me. Yes, hi. Actually, we're we're keeping this. I agree completely. (laughs) It's so frustrating. (laughs) Okay, so question time. Is the world is not enough making the knock list? Lisa, you're up first. Uh, That would be a no for me. Um, yeah, I think that there's some really great spy films out there and 
I just don't think that this compares to to many of them out there. Is it a film that people should watch? Sure. Is it a film that I enjoy watching? Absolutely. Is it one of the top five Bond films that I would go and watch? No. Um, <laughs> um, I think Casino Royale would be a very different answer to this question. Um, but I feel as though there are other Bond films that are more deserving to be on this list than The World Is Not Enough. Okay. Cam? Yeah, it's also a no for me. It's a movie that I can never fully love it. And I wish I could because I feel that way about every Bond movie. I want <laughs> to love them all. But at the end of the day, it's one that I still continue to struggle with. Every time I sit down with it, I feel like I have a different experience. Like I'll walk away appreciating mostly, you know, the electric character, but I'll, you know, finish one watch and be like, God, the action's boring in this movie. And then the next time I'll be like, oh, you know what? It's well shot. I kind of enjoy it for that. And then the next time I'm bored again. So it just never quite has a consistent hold on me. So it's a movie that I can sit and talk about. I think the conversation we've had about it is really great. And I'm I'm really happy that it exists for that reason, but it's not one of the all-time great spy films. No. <laughs> no, I, I don't think I could put it up there, unfortunately. I it, It's grown in my estimation since when I saw it as a kid, because I think they're trying to do stuff and it has a great female lead. But it lets itself down on the action sequences. The rest of the characters, apart from Bond and Elektra, are basically two-dimensional. Um, it it strives to do things, and it just doesn't reach those heights. So for me, the world is definitely not enough. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Look at you. You're quipping like Brosnan here. <laughs> is that a good thing? I don't know. I don't know either. Contagious. <laughs> um. Well, there we go. So, The World Is Not Enough is not making the knock lists and the dossier on the film is complete and filed as classified. Lisa, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it's been an absolute thrill having you on to talk about this film. Hopefully, we'll get you on for maybe a non-Bond film down the road. Ooh, yes. Stretch your spy wings out. <laughs> but in the meantime, where can people find more from you? You can find me on social media. If you look up Dr. Lisa Funnel, there's two N's and two L's in Funnel. You can find me on Twitter. You can find me on Instagram. You can find me on Facebook. Uh, you can find me on lisafunnel.com. That's my website. Um, I'm a regular on James Bond and Friends, the podcast. And if you're interested, I have books out there as well. So if you just look on Amazon, uh, you can find my books uh, For His Eyes Only, The Women of James Bond, as well as The Geographies, Genders, and Geopolitics of James Bond. Very nice. And we'll put links to those up on the, on the uh, show notes for sure for people who want to check those out. Perfect. Well, again, thank you for joining us, Lisa. Before we discuss what we're doing next week, we have a quick message from Paige at the Reverie True Crime Podcast. My name is Paige, and I'm the host of Reverie True Crime. Reverie means to daydream, but even daydreams can turn into nightmares. Join me as I tell you haunting and horrific reveries about missing people and senseless murders. I also interview survivors and people seeking justice for themselves or a loved one. New episodes come out every Monday morning, and sometimes you'll get bonus episodes on Thursdays. Wherever you're listening to this current podcast right now, you can find Reverie True Crime. So that's it. Reverie True Crime. Check it out on any major podcast app. 
Uh, Cam, what are we doing next week? Well, we're going back to 1985, Scott, to hang out with Fred Ward in Remo Williams, The Adventure Begins. I don't remember that title. Was it called something different here? I think it did have a few subtitles, yeah, because The Adventure began, but it did not continue. <laughs> <laughs> hopefully it's a, a glorious beginning. Yeah, hopefully. Hopefully. Um, well, that's it. So your assignment, should you choose to accept it, is to watch Remo Williams. Uh, I've got it down as Unarmed and Dangerous. Mm, okay yeah could be either um and join us next week now don't forget to follow us discreetly on social media at spyhards that's s-p-y-h-a-r-d-s on facebook twitter and instagram but until next week listeners remember these two things never let them see you bleed and always have an exit strategy (laughs) 